Matthew chapter 28. We ended in chapter 27 as the religious leaders came to Pontius Pilate on Saturday, the high day, transgressing their own tradition, of course, to ask Pilate to put a guard at the tomb because they said, you know, this guy said when he was alive that he was going to rise from the dead, which none of the disciples remembered, but his enemies remembered. <clears throat> and we're afraid the disciples are going to come by night and steal the body. And then they're going to say that he rose from the dead. And the last situation is going to be worse than the first situation. It was bad enough that people followed him and thought he was a Messiah. But if they say he's risen, they might really believe that. And the last is going to be worse than the first. And Pilate is fed up with them by now. He didn't want to crucify Christ. He had washed his hands. He really wanted to be out of the whole thing. So he find, I think he's mocking them here. He just kind of says, well, you have a guard. The language, some people say what he says is you already have the temple guard. Then why were they talking to Pilate if they already had a guard and jurisdiction? Uh, he says you have a guard. You have what you want. I'll give you a Roman guard Go on and make it as sure as you can. You need Roman soldiers to make sure a dead guy don't escape. Go on and make it as sure as you possibly can. You know, the, the Jewish temple guards, which some say this is here, they had jurisdiction solely on the Temple Mount. That's why when the temple guard came to Jesus in Gethsemane, they had a cohort with them, a Roman cohort, because the temple guards had no jurisdiction in Gethsemane, only on the Temple Mount. And here, they're asking for a guard to be at the tomb, which was obviously not on the Temple Mount, and they have to go to Pilate to ask for that Roman guard to be there. And God the Father is making sure that even the Romans are going to have a clear testimony of the resurrection of Jesus Christ by putting the, guy, the guys at the tomb who would not leave because it would be at stake of their life. And uh, the Lord's going to make sure that even the Romans know that that tomb is empty. It's, re it's remarkable, really. So Pilate said, go on, lock it down. See if you can keep that dead guy in there, you know. And no doubt being sarcastic. You have your watch, your custodia, this group of soldiers. And it tells us then, in the end of the Sabbath, as it began to dawn, the Sabbath had ended at evening, then through the night, as it begins to dawn, notice towards the first day of the week came Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, and they came to see the sepulcher. This is the feast, by the way, of first fruits. You had the feast of Passover when the lamb, of course, was slaughtered. Jesus was the lamb of God. It was necessary for him to die on the Passover. And then several days later, you have the feast of first fruits, which is the first of the biblical feast, unleavened bread, first fruits. Passover was not a Levitical feast. It, it was celebrated in Egypt before the Levites instituted any of the Levitical feasts. But the Feast of First Fruits is when the priest took an early shock of grain and went into the temple and waved it 
before the holy place, and it was symbolic of the greater harvest that would come. And then, of course, we know that took place on Pentecost. So here it tells us Jesus was the first fruits of them who slept, and we're going to be part of that group as well. So what an interesting morning. Uh, you put the four Gospels together, it's still dark, it's getting light, kind of gives us the time signature, it's early in the morning. The women are coming possibly to add more spices to the body. They would come early because just only takes a few days in that humidity and that climate for the body to begin to smell. So it seems they're coming early. And it says to see the tomb because they watched the stone rolled in front of the tomb. Now, they were unaware that Pilate had put a guard there because if they'd have known that, they wouldn't even have come. So they're coming early in the morning to see. Now, it says, by the way, it's on the first day of the week. Acts chapter 20 tells us the same thing. It says in verse 7, And upon the first day of the week, when the disciples came together, it tells us in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given order to the churches of Galatia, even so do ye. Upon the first day of the week, let every one of you have by him in store as God hath prospered him. So the New Testament is clear. It's the first day of the week. First day of the week is Sunday. The Jewish week ended on the Sabbath, on Saturday. So Sunday is the first day of the week. Sunday is the eighth day. It's called that in other places. That's when the octave begins over. That's when everything begins new in some ways on the eighth day. And here they come on the first day of the week to see the tomb. And Mark tells us as they're coming, they're thinking, who's going to remove the stone for us that we're able to get in there with the spices and so forth, the things that they're bringing. And it's Mary Magdalene, and it is Mary, the brother, the mother of James the Less and so forth. And they're coming. They were the last at the tomb. Now they're going to be the first at the tomb. And it says, and behold, verse 2, think about this. This is an imperative. You need to think about this. There was a great earthquake, megaloseismos, a, a great earthquake. For the reason there was a great earthquake, for the angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. This is a sassy angel. I can't wait to meet him. I like this. You know, Josephus tells us 40 years before Titus Vespasian destroyed the city of Jerusalem that there were a series of earthquakes. This is our picture here. When Christ dies on the cross, there's the darkness, there's an earthquake. We hear about it there. Now, three days later, it says there's a great earthquake. And this is probably kind of like the alarm clock. Everybody wakes up, you know, and the women think, we need to get there. Um, when they get there, obviously we're going to read here, the soldiers are already gone when the women get there. So the, the women are coming. There's a great earthquake that morning. The cause of the quake, it says, is because the angel for causative, the angel of the Lord, descended from heaven 
And he came and he rolled back the stone, rolled it away, as it were, back the stone from the door, and he sat upon it. Just imagine the soldier seeing this thing come down from heaven, this brilliant light. It's going to tell us his clothing was like lightning, shining, glistening, bursting forth. It was pure white. And he comes, and as he comes, he must land when there's an earthquake. And he rolls the stone, and then he sits on it. It's kind of defying hell and death. You know, you have to understand the era has just changed for time and eternity. The lamb was slain before the foundation of the world, we're told. Angels had been involved. Daniel speaks of that and so forth. Gabriel had come to tell Mary when this child would be born. But something is vastly different now that he's died on the cross and now he's risen And time and eternity has changed. The reason he was slain before the foundation of the world is now realized. And there is now again interaction between heaven and earth that was impossible without the death and resurrection of Jesus. And the angel slams down. You can imagine the whole land of Israel rumbling. And then he rolls back the stone and he sits on that stone. Just, I I love... I want to meet, you're the one. Yeah, I'm the one. Why did you sit on it after you rolled it away? It says, and his countenance, his appearance, when they looked at him, his countenance was like lightning. The idea is flashing, if you study. And his raiment was like, it was as white as snow. And, and understand as we as we look at this, We're only told about this in Matthew. Matthew is the only one who tells us about what happened at the tomb. Matthew was familiar with Roman soldiers and no doubt was a guy who could go sit where they were, you know, talking about these things and so forth. Matthew had stood as a tax gatherer with a Roman soldier behind him with a spear and a sword. And all the authority of Rome had been, he was on Rome's payroll. Matthew was the one who knew people to ask about. And somewhere in the process, he talks to one of the soldiers that he knows or one of the soldiers that knew what he heard from the guys that were there. And Matthew alone in his gospel gives us this record. You know, John, you have Mary Magdalene, Peter and John running the tomb. You have these different things. Only Matthew tells us there was this guard. The angel comes down, slams on the ground, rolls the stone away and sits on it. Only Matthew. We never have to worry about that stone being on our sepulcher because it's been rolled away. Sin in our life has been dealt with. We'll never be sealed in a tomb, remarkably. Rolls the stone away. Now, look, it isn't to let Jesus out. He's already gone. This is to let us in so we can see that he's gone. He comes and he rolls the stone away. And his appearance, whoever gives Matthew the information, it was like lightning flashing. And his rain was white as snow. And for fear of him... The keepers did shake 
and became as dead men. So whoever told Matthew said, we were going, yeah, you know, yo, you know, and we went down and we're shaking on the ground. You know, Matthew gets the scoop here. And these are guys that are never afraid of anything, by the way. This Roman guard, these are Navy SEALs. This is a, a special group of men. And for them to be terrified and for them to fall down, you have to understand what's going on. You know, over in verse 54 in the last chapter, it says, When the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, this is a centurion, truly this was the Son of God. I mean, these soldiers that are standing watching on the tomb, they experienced the three hours of blackness that covered the earth. They had experienced the previous earthquake. Uh, they knew that the veil probably in the temple was torn from top to bottom. And they probably had this centurion say to me, I'm glad I'm not on that guard. I'm telling you, that guy might come out. He's just, you know, you hear those stories when you're growing up, when you're a kid. You know, these guys may have already been, you know, weary, eerily, you know, unnerved as they went there. And when this happens, it says, for fear... Of him, the keepers did shake, and they became as dead men. And the angel answered and said to the women, So, between verses 4 and 5, these guys have hightailed it out of there. How they got how they got from dead men on the ground to running, it doesn't they were not bothered to, to be informed about that. But they're gone when the women get there. Now the women come. And it says this, the angel answered and said to the women, fear not ye. The idea is in comparison to these brave warriors that were just here that took off. Fear not ye. Listen to what he says. For I know that you seek Jesus, which is crucified. Fear not ye. That's the place we're in. If we're living our lives and we're seeking Jesus who was crucified, heaven consoles us. Heaven understands. Here, this picture of this is, is, is the angel knows what's going on. Heaven is searching. He says, I know. Heaven knows what's in our hearts as well. I know that you seek Jesus who was Nazareth because I know your motives. I know who you are. You don't have to be afraid. Those who were trying to keep him in the tomb, they need to be afraid. Those that are trying to keep him in the tomb today, they need to be afraid as well. Those that are telling churches they can't meet, those that are putting us in their sights, those that are saying that we can't worship the living and the true God, those that are saying we're wrong, that we're too narrow, that believing in Jesus is the only way to go to heaven, those who are saying those things, they need to be afraid. You and I who are seeking Jesus who is risen need not be afraid. That, and an angel says that. It's not an opinion. It wasn't written in the paper somewhere. He is not here. For he is risen. Wonderfully, as he said, come see the place where the Lord lay. He is risen as he said, let me just look at a few of those. You don't have to turn. Um, chapter 16, verse 21, if you remember. It says, from that time forth, 
began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised again on the third day. Chapter 17 tells us this, verse 23. And then they shall kill him, and the third day he shall be raised again. Then in chapter 20, it tells us this. Behold, we go up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man shall be betrayed, and the chief priests and the, the, the scribes, they shall condemn him to death, and they shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. The, the point is, he said this over and over to them, and the angel had no doubt that this was going to happen. Heaven had no doubt. So the angel now says, look, I know you're seeking Jesus who was crucified. How many times did he have to tell you he wasn't going to be here? He said that. He is not here. For he is risen, I have this underlined in my Bible, as he said. Because Jesus always keeps his promises. And he's made a lot of them to us. And I'm thankful. He is risen as he said, then heaven beckons come and see the place where the Lord lay as the women were to look in. Certainly they would recognize the fact that the shroud that had been wrapped around him and so forth was laying flat, that it wasn't grave robbers because they just take the whole thing wrapped up. They just hightail it out with everything. Uh, we're told in John's Gospel the piece that was wrapped around his head was folded laying there. Uh, one of the other Gospels tells us there were two angels. There was a place inside the tomb. When you go to Jerusalem today, you can see it. There's like a, a, a sitting place at the head and at the feet of where the body lay. So now this angel is there, and he addresses the women. He says, come and see. Now look in verse 7. Then he says, go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, consider this, he goeth before you into Galilee, there shall ye see him. Lo, the angel says, I have told you. Chapter 26, Jesus had said uh, to them, and they're supposed to know this, but after I am risen again, I will go before you into Galilee. He had told them clearly. So the angel now says to her some things that are important to us. One, come and see. Then go and tell. Come and see, go and tell. That has to be the story of our lives as well. We see, not just with our eyes, with our heart, the light of the glorious gospel of Christ that shines in our hearts. Come and see, heaven says, then go and tell. Interesting here, it says go quickly. There's no time left to mess around. There's, there's an urgency about what heaven is beckoning us to do today. So come and see, go and tell, he says, is that he's risen. That's your, that's your testimony from the dead. And behold, he's going into Galilee. There shall you see him. Lo, 
I have told you. And it says in verse 8, And they departed quickly from the sepulcher with fear and great joy. Isn't that an interesting combination of things? The women depart from the sepulcher. Fear, I understand that. You're, 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 uh, you're in the sepulcher with an angel. You, you know, you walk in and think, what's happened? The stone's gone. You walk in, there's an angel there. That'll kind of freak you out a little bit. Uh, and it says, with fear and great joy. It doesn't say with great fear and joy. But it says with fear and great joy. You know, that's our experience. There is a... awe about the reality of our Lord and Savior. There is, there's a reverence, there's a fear, but there's great joy attached to that because it, it pre- presents him to us, this Holy Spirit, the reality of everything. So there's fear and great joy. That's what they experience here. And it says, and as they went to tell his disciples, behold, consider this, Jesus met them, saying, All hail. And they came and they held him by the feet, and they worshipped him. So as they're going, by the way, this is the first appearance to Jesus. It seems that Mary Magdalene is after this, because she goes back to the tomb and he appears there. This, This seems, as we go through the four Gospels, this is the first appearance. They're running to tell his disciples he's risen. And it says, as they're going to do that, Jesus met them. I think as we're busy about his business, doing what we're supposed to be doing, that's when he meets us as well. But he went as they were going to tell his disciples. Now, it says Jesus met them. That's an interesting word. He met them. It speaks of something that happens face to face. I don't think he's moseying in from the distance as they're running I think somehow he steps into the path. He steps and he says he met them there. And he says to them, all hail. Now, that sounds pretty King Jamesy, I know. Uh, It is the most common greeting. It is rejoice. It's this. Yo. (laughs) It's the most common. This is the most common greeting of the day. Jesus, they're running to tell us, just get out of the tomb, angel. They're on their way, and all of a sudden, there he is. Sup? That's what it is. We would take, it's that common in our jargon. That's what he does. Yo, guys, what's happening? It's, it's that tender and familiar. This is their risen Savior, the one who they love, the reason that they were last at the tomb and first there on Easter morning because they loved him, and now he steps out. He just kind of meets them and says, you guys, what's up? How you doing? You know, give me five. All hell. And they came and they held him by the feet. No doubt the nail marks are there. And they worshiped him. They held him wonderfully. Look, this is what we believe in, resurrection. Uh, Not just, we're not just spirits in the afterlife. Resurrection. They actually held his feet. He was risen. And uh, we're going to do this with our 
moms and dads that have gone on before us. We're going to do this with our brothers and sisters who we've lost. We're going to do this with any babes that we've miscarried. We're going to do this with those that we know that have gone on before us. We're going to do this with Jesus. We're going to do this. I'm going to do it with Spurgeon when I see him. I'm going to hug him. You know, there's a reality to this. They held him by the feet and they worshipped him. Then said Jesus unto them, Be not afraid, because it's fear and great joy. Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren that they go into Galilee, and there shall they see me. Go tell my brethren. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, yeah, the, 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 the ones that denied you. Yeah, yeah, the ones who betrayed you. Yeah, the ones who swore and said they didn't know you when the rooster crowed. Yeah, yeah, that group, the doubters. You know, go and tell my brethren. Isn't that amazing? I don't know about you guys. I, I, I'm not totally comprehending the wonder of whom he's my older brother. My brother, because we have a common home. We have a common father. We have a common destiny. You know, we have a family lineage. He's my brother. Go and tell my brethren that they go into Galilee and there they're going to see me. Now, when we get to verse 11, again, it's only Matthew's gospel that gives us verses 11 and 15 because only Matthew knew the inside story, again, with the Roman soldiers and so forth. And so he says here, um, now... When they were going, behold, some of the watch, this Roman guard, came into the city, and they showed unto the chief priests all the things that were done. When you see an angel, you don't go to your commanding officer, you need to find a priest. And uh, these guys go to the priests because they were supposedly be, being on duty for them and they go there and they find the priests and told them everything that was done. And when they were assembled with the elders, so immediately they called together the Sanhedrin and had taken counsel, they hear the whole story from these soldiers, they gave them a large sum of money saying, what we want you to say is that his disciples came by night and they took him away or stole him away while you slept. Well, first of all, how do you know who took him if you were asleep? Uh, that's a stupid... Yeah, we were sawing Z's and uh, we woke up and none of us seen it, but we know it was those disciples. Now, second of all, to fall asleep here is a death sentence um, none of them would have fallen asleep when they were supposed to be on duty. When Peter escaped from the prison in Jerusalem, it says, When Herod had sought for him and found him not, he examined the keepers, the guards, and he commanded um, that they should be put to death. And he went down then to Judea. So if you were a guard 
particularly at a tomb, you let a dead guy get away. But you're you're a guard, and you you fail at that under Roman law. It was a it was a capital crime. It was death sentence. So these soldiers go to the priest and they tell them everything that happened. And the wonderful thing is the priests now are hearing from the very eyewitnesses that they made sure were at the tomb. And they're getting some of their own business at this point in time. Um, other thing is, you know, they're, they're, you think, how much money does it take for you to lie about seeing an angel? Just think of that. Isn't that amazing? You know, it, it was money that paid for the betrayal of Jesus. Judas, 30 pieces of silver. Are you kidding me? It was money that paid for that. It was money that's paying for them here to silence the truth. And money in our world today would love to silence the truth. It's money that Paul warns Timothy about in 1 Timothy chapter 6. That the love of money is the root of all evil. People have brought so many different kinds of pain into their lives by making money the most important thing in their life. Money is a great servant. It's a cruel master. Money is a great tool to use against the devil. There's There's a great way to use money, and there's purpose to it. But servants of God, beware, because money will wear you down. Money will desensitize you. Money will pay you into a comfortable position. And money then is never satisfied with its place in someone's life because then money will begin to demand power as well. And uh, wealthy people around the world today think they have a God complex. They think they're running thing. Money careful. Filthy lucre. It's got a great purpose. It can be a good servant. We can use it for missions. We can use it as a weapon against the enemy. But money also produces betrayal. It produces a silencing of the truth. It can produce a hardening of hearts. Um, they said to the soldiers, don't you, this is the go. You go, you, you tell this lie. You say they came by night while we slept and stole his body. Again, that's so crazy even to to think that. You know, his disciples weren't going to come steal the body. They thought he was dead. They hadn't got it yet, you know. And, you know, it's interesting because these religious leaders, Jesus, when he talks about Lazarus and the rich man, at the end of that record, Lazarus says to Abraham, you know, send somebody to my brother. Certainly, if they know that this is all real, they'll repent. And Abraham says, no, you know, they have Moses and the prophets. If they won't believe them, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Isn't that amazing? And here the religious leaders are getting the testimony right from the soldiers whose lives are in jeopardy for fleeing the tomb that they're supposed to be guarding. And instead of, you know, you wonder what's Gamaliel thinking? Is, you know, is Joseph of Arimathea or Nicodemus? They had already, you know, put their own standing in jeopardy by, by burying, burying, putting Christ in a tomb. Who's there in this crew that's hearing this thinking we must be crazy? 
And if this comes to the governor's ears, to Pilate's ears, we will persuade him and secure you. So we'll make sure the governor doesn't put you to death if it comes to his ears. By the way, I believe it came to his ears. Um, there's a book, you know, I tried to get it years ago, but there was like one copy in Philadelphia and a copy in London or something. Uh, the Archaeological and Historic Writings of the Sanhedrin and the Talmud of the Jews, it's called. And it's back in print now. But in that book, there's all kinds of records of the supposedly um, the, the, the guys in the 1800s who did some of the research spent a number of years, in three years in the Vatican, I believe, where they said there were over 250,000 volumes in their library. And then a number of years in Constantinople, uh, looking at parchments and so forth. So they put together this book of historic writings and things from the Talmud, but there's a letter in there called the Acta Pilati, the Acta Pilati, which are the Acts of Pilate. And amongst those, there's a letter that Pilate writes to Tiberius Caesar talking about this man who was under his jurisdiction named Jesus. And he said, when I first started to hear about him, I thought, well, he's a troublemaker. This always happens with these Jews. You know, he's a troublemaker. And he, and he talks about how one day he saw him with a crowd of people and he listened to what he was saying. And he said he was as friendly to Roman government as he was to his own people. He encouraged not to steal. He encouraged not to rob. He, he said, I listened to him. And then he said, of course, I heard there were miracles happening and so forth. When he was finally brought before me, I rejoiced to see him, but he wouldn't answer me. He wouldn't talk to me. This is something that supposedly wrote to Tiberius. They weren't sure of the reality of it. I think Tertullian, a couple of the church fathers, mention it. And then the author of the book that you can get now says, in 1935, I was able to get to the London Museum where they have a copy, complete copy of the Acta Pilati there and confirm the things I had heard and studied were there. I could see them in the translation of the, the letter. And then Pilate finally says how his soldier came to him, one of his guards that he put in charge of this crew that came and said, this is what happened. And, this and, and then he says to Tiberius, I'm not sure, I have no doubt that this man was a prophet. Maybe he was who they say who he was and so forth. But it's interesting report that he sends to Tiberius Caesar. So it, I'm only saying this because it says if it comes to the governor's ears. And boy, did it. You know, how could you keep this a secret? Paul says, you know, this didn't happen in a corner. Crucifixion and resurrection. Everybody knows about it. So if he comes to the governor's ears, we'll persuade him. We'll secure you so he doesn't kill you. So, look. They took the money. Things never change. They took the money. And they did as they were taught. And this saying is commonly reported amongst the Jews until this day when Matthew is writing. Justin Martyr, Tertullian, some of the early church fathers said in their day it was still being taught through the Roman Empire that the disciples came and stole the body, that Jesus wasn't really risen. So this lie that was paid for and uh, put out there. Verse 16 says, Then, notice the 11, is no longer the 12. 
The eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. Um, how many of you guys have been to Israel? This? Oh, good. You guys, when we go there and we go on the Arbel, I always think, I wonder if this is the place. It's the highest mountain around the Sea of Galilee. You stand on the Arbel, you can see Capernaum. Uh, you can see the Gadarenes where the, the demoniac, the herd of swine ran down. You can see Tiberias. You can see Magdala where Mary Magdalene. You can see the place where the 5,000 were fed. You see the whole perimeter of the area. And I wonder if that's where he met with them as he called them. Uh, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians um, he says, uh, I delivered unto you, first of all, that which also received, how, the, the, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the scripture, that he was buried and he rose again the third day, according to the scripture, and that he was seen of Cephas and of the twelve, and after that he was seen of about five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain unto the present some have fallen asleep. Paul says there was one point when he appears to 500, about 500 people at one time. Most scholars believe, and I, I believe this is here in Galilee. It tells us in Acts chapter 1 that it was with many inf infallible proofs that he demonstrated the resurrection, showed himself alive for 40 days. Part of that is this appearance in Galilee. Yes, he had appeared in Jerusalem a number of times. He appeared that first Sabbath when he rose. He appeared the next Sabbath to his guys. Uh, but then in Galilee, he did some business. And, of course, the guys are fishing, and he has to bring them back uh, to the missionary endeavor instead of fishing again. But it says at one point here, he appoints them to go there to a particular place, notable, recognizable, that he appointed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. We will too. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Isn't it interesting? But some doubted. Um, only Matthew used that word doubted in the New Testament. And he only uses it one other time. It's not just doubting in the sense when, I don't know, if he's, is that really him or is that a hologram? Or, you know, it's not doubting in that sense. It's used of Peter when he steps out on the boat and he goes to walk with on the water with Jesus and he walks to him. It says, but then when he sees the wind and the sea, he was afraid. That's our word. He doubted. It's it's pulling back and and maybe even more than applying it to Peter there. It's applied, no doubt, to those here who were seeing him risen they're seeing the nail marks in his hands. Was his face still showing the beating? And, and you know, the, the disciples came and worshipped him. But some, it says, no doubt, there was a measure of fear. They were, they, they look, can this be real? You know, just what an amazing thing to that for them to have seen. And again, you know, I, I look here, and, and no doubt there was. Uh, you know, a woman who had had a flow of blood. You know, there was Jairus and his daughter, no doubt. There were widow of Nain and her son. You can imagine the crew that are here gathered together. They worshipped him when they saw him. Some doubted. 
And then Jesus came and he spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world, even to the end of the age. So this encounter with the risen Christ now on this mountain in Galilee, he says this, all power, I have all circle in my body. There's no leftovers. The devil doesn't have any. There's no, the government doesn't have any. Washington doesn't have any. You know, Moscow doesn't have any. All power, exousia, all authority, he says, is given to me in heaven and earth. He says, I am omnipotent, all power. In heaven and earth, I am sovereign. He says to his disciples, all power is given to me. Now, you know, you have Philippians chapter 2, you know, that let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, that being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, made himself in the form of a servant, took on the likeness of men, humbled himself, uh, even to the death of the cross, wherefore God hath highly exalted him and given him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee, things in heaven, things on earth, things on earth, that every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's our picture here. He says, all authority in heaven and earth. It's power, yes, but it's more than power. It's the regal authority of a king. All authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. I try to remember this when I watch the news. I don't know about you guys. You know, you look at what's going on in the world, I got to keep reminding myself. You know, they don't have any, they're acting like they got some authority. They ain't got no authority. All authority in heaven and earth belong to Jesus. He's on the throne right now and nothing's out of control. It really looks to me like there's a lot of things out of control, but nothing's out of control. In fact, he wrote all these things ahead of time as we're looking around. We're thinking, oh yeah, this is, uh, this is what he said would be going on. All authority, he is sovereign. He is omnipotent. All authority in heaven and earth, he says, is given unto me. And because of that, now here's the exhortation. Go ye therefore... Teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, which is kind of behold on steroids. Lo is kind of like, whoa, I am with you always even to the end of the age. So he gives us the, the, the formula here in one sense for discipleship. You see in verse 19 there where it says, teach all nations. Then you see down in verse 20, it says, teaching them. Those are two completely different words in the Greek. What it says in verse 19 is, go ye therefore and not teach, make disciples of all nations. That word is specifically talking about making disciples. So how do you make disciples? How do you discipleship? How do you see the church grow? How do you... He says it's simple. First you go. Got to go. 
can't just sit. you got to go. He says, making disciples of all nations. He says, first thing you want to do is be baptizing them. That means you've led them to Christ if you're going to baptize them. So you go. You evangelize. You baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, that's really interesting because the name, baptize them in the name, is singular in the Greek. But it represents all three. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's that's important because, you know, some people say, oh, I know, you know, we're going to have a baptism. I'm watching. I knew it was coming to this. You know, I know how these people, you know, you're supposed to baptize in the name of Jesus only. You know, there's a lot of only Jesus dunkers out there. And then, they, you know, they get offended, you know. So, I mean, when I have an opportunity to be involved in baptism, I just baptize you in the, in the name of Jesus, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You cover all your bases. Nobody can gripe or complain. But here, the interesting thing is it's a singular name in the name, which is Jesus to me, of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So you go, you make converts, you baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then it says, and you teach them, didaskalos, you instruct them, you, you, you know, teaching. There's a time process involved in all of this. You mentor them, you teach them. What you teach them, he says, is to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. To observe is to keep, to guard, to hold on to to treasure, to find precious. You go, here. here's the formula for discipleship. Because, you know, sometimes there's some places in the church where they have kind of like Amway discipleship, where you disciple two people, and then they, they each disciple two people, which makes four people, and then they all disciple two people, which makes, you know, eight people, then it goes, to, you know, the, here's the process, you know, and then pretty soon you have this pyramid discipleship scheme that goes on. It doesn't say any of that here. He says, go. You have friends and relatives that aren't saved. You need to go to them. If they had cancer and you had a shot that would cure them, you'd go to them. They have a different kind of cancer. Go, he says to them. Make disciples of them. The process of that is baptizing them. They've come to faith. Secondly, then teaching them to guard, to keep all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And how we need to teach people in the day and age we're living in with social media and the television and so forth, we really need to teach people to guard the things that Christ has given to us. Because the world is contradicting those things. You know, my wife was looking at um, David Jeremiah's commentary on the book of Acts. And because and she loved it because it said something about participating in the revolution. And my wife is a rebel. So she loved that title, being involved in the You know, she said, I said, yeah, but the thing about revolution in regards to the church now is in the book of Acts, the, the, the constriction was the Roman government. They were brutal. The, the heel of Rome was on the neck of everybody who wouldn't cooperate. I said the 
the enemy now is immoral, divisive, hateful. Now it's not the government with their foot on our neck, just in brutality, but it's indoctrinating our children. It's filling us with all kinds of ideas. And if you're watching the news, it's going past immorality. It's going past, you know, evolution. It's going past, there's just a genuine hatred and division that's being promoted now. I mean, I'm, I'm watching what's happening in the Middle East, and I'm thinking, ow, there's anti-Semitism all over the world. And it's, it's fueled, it's hatred. It's not just, well, I don't agree, you know, they need to get somebody there to make sure that there's a ceasefire. It's not, it's not like that at all. It is venomous and angry and heated. And it's the same spirit that's spreading division across our country along different lines that wants division in the church, that wants division in our families, that wants division among us. It's a different type of bondage now than it was then. So we need to guard the things that Christ has given to us. He says that here. Teach them. You know, you go and you teach them, he says, to observe, to guard, to hold on to, to consider precious, you know, to hold on to the things, all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And then you add to that a low. And low, I am with you, plural, I'm with all y'all. I am with you always. There's no break in it. Even unto the end of the age. Hebrews chapter 13, verse, the, the second half of verse 5 says, He hath said, I will never leave thee or forsake thee. A few verses down in verse 8, it says, He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's promised never to leave us or forsake us. He says, he says, go tell them, I am with you always, as long as you perform the way you're supposed to. I am with you always, as long as you never mess up. I am with you always, as long as you live cleaner than everybody else. I am with you always, as long as there ain't a little bit of sin in your life. No, I am with you always even to the end of the age. He's with us. He knows us. He makes intercession for us. There isn't, if we're genuinely his, our failings, the areas that we still need to grow in, do not separate us from him. It's, it's his very heart to come alongside of us and to never leave us or forsake us as we are becoming disciples, as we are growing in grace and in knowledge of who he is, as we are rediscovering deeper parts of his love. So this incredible picture about disciples, you want to know how to make disciples in this world? You know, certainly it's a work of the Spirit. In the book of Acts, Jesus said, what you need to do is wait here till you're endued with power. Everything I've taught you, all the miracles you've seen, You've been with the best seminary professor in the universe for the last three years. But you need to wait now for the Holy Ghost to come and ignite all of that. There's a, there needs to be another dimension. 
when the Holy Spirit of P comes upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the othermost parts of the earth. That's the evidence of life, reproduction, the church, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the othermost parts of the earth. Here we are tonight, 2,000 years later, an evidence of the fact that this system works. So you go. You share the gospel with people. You baptize them. Make disciples of them, baptizing them, and then instructing them, teaching them to observe, to guard, to keep all the things I've commanded. It doesn't change. It's not like our culture is different, so those things are no longer relative, and we have to understand what is relative. The word of God abides forever. The earth is going to pass away. This is going to stand in time and eternity. And the things that Jesus said then 2,000 years ago are as real and as powerful tonight as they have ever been or ever will be. And they are treasures given to us for us to keep them and to guard them and to treasure them and to hold on to them. And, and, and then he adds to that, and lo, this should have some weight. I am with you always, <laughs> even to the end of the age. It doesn't say you can tell I'm with you because you'll get goosebumps and your hair will stand up. That's really a spiritual way of knowing whether the Lord's with us. Don't get me wrong. I like goosebumps, and if the Holy Spirit comes and I have sensation with that's a wonderful thing. I don't mind that. But what, when that's not happening, what do we do, you know? Where is Jesus when we don't feel him, we don't see him, we don't feel like he's around? Where is he? I know where he is. When I don't feel him, he's right next to me, not wanting me to feel him. Because he said in his word, he would never leave me or forsake me. You know, again, you raise kids, you know, and uh, Hannah's not here, so I won't embarrass her. But Hannah, you know, she's a little, you know, Five, six, I need daddy love. I need daddy love. She'd come up to me. What she meant was I need to be hugged. I need to feel your presence. And, and that's good for a while. But then I used to mess with her, and she was like 17 years old with her friends. I'd woke up and say, let me give you some daddy love. Get out of here. You know, just. But the interesting thing, at that age, she actually knew my love better than she did when she was a little kid because she understood the cost. She understood the commitment. She understood, you know, so, you know, the, the process here of growth is the same. He's with us always, even to the end of the age. It's wonderful when we're young Christians and we need those goosebumps. We need all that. Because what we're really saying is, Lord, I need, to, I need to know you're there. But when we get older and we mature, it is no longer based on I need daddy love in the sense of feeling his presence. Because as we grow, we realize he gave his only begotten son so that he could put his arms around me. He allows him to stand before him now in time and eternity and intercede for me, to stand between me and my father as my high priest. When I mess up, he is my advocate. He moves then towards me to represent me to the father. He has promised never to leave me or forsake me, even to the end of the age. So when I don't get goosebumps, I don't feel ripped off, okay? I love to experience his presence. Three times in the last 50 years, 
I have. And uh, it, I, I, it, was, it was crushing and overwhelming. And, uh, not long ago, it, his presence filled the room. A bunch of us were there. And it lasted for 45 minutes. I felt like I could hardly breathe. I felt like if there was one more pound of his presence, I would die. But what was crushing me was his love and his grace. It was overpowering. I couldn't even breathe. But I had this sense of right in this is the answer to every question I have, every problem I've ever faced, every longing. It was, it was just there's just something about that, you know. So he says that here. Go. Make disciples. You do that by leading them to Christ, baptizing and teaching them. And you consider this. Add this to all of that. I am with you always. Even to the end of the age. Same Jesus 2,000 years ago. Same Jesus today. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Amen. And he's the same for us tonight. So uh, we're going to do this, Lord willing, if he tarries, and I hope he doesn't. Uh, next Wednesday, Lewis Neely will be here with us on Wednesday night. Get out and hear Lewis. He's a hoot. You need to you need to hear Lewis. And the Wednesday after that, if the Lord tarries, we will uh, have communion here on Wednesday night together as we're between books. And the Wednesday after that, which seems light years away, uh, if the Lord tarries, we'll begin the book of Acts. So I want you to read ahead and jump into that. But let's stand. Let's pray together. Let's uh, lift our hearts to our Savior in song. Lord Jesus, I know you've overheard, and we look to you. And Lord, what incredible, Lord, uh, pictures as you put your brush to the canvas here, Lord. And you paint out, Lord. You turn your word our ears into eyes, Lord. You you give us these things, and it's we can see them, Lord, in some way, Lord, some mysterious way. They're, we're not just hearing them; we're seeing them as we grow, Lord. We go through this, and it's so real to us, and so wonderful. We're thankful for that. And Lord, as we lift our voices now, we praise. We pray, Lord, that would bless you. Here we are, two thousand years later, Lord, after you gave this injunction. And, and we've been led to you, Lord. We've been baptized. Lord, we're being instructed. We're being your disciples. We're rejoicing that you are with us always, even to the end of the age, which might, which might be later this week. <laughs> Lord, we're your bride. We're your blood-bought ones. And we pray tonight, Lord, as we lift our voices now, that our sacrifice of praise would bring you joy, Lord Jesus. We pray it would bring you joy, Lord. We think of you walking, Lord, amongst those few so long ago. And now seeing your church all over the world, Lord. And we pray here on Philmont Avenue, Lord, as our voices and our hearts rise, Lord Jesus, you would be blessed. We want that, Lord. We bless you, Lord. We praise you.